Thank you for listening to High Green, the official podcast of the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, where we delve into the history, memories, and legacy of the Route of the Minuteman. High Green is funded by your membership in the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, and any views expressed on the show are solely those of the owner. If you'd like to learn more about what we do in the Society or join us, you can head right on over to our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but it's it's a B&M story and it's a good one. Oh my God, he says, I don't think I ever saw a train down here before. (laughs) He was amused. I still have that wanderlust. I still want to go back railroading. Before we get started with today's episode, just wanted to give a few updates on events that the Society is going to be participating in in the next few months. On Saturday, April 8th, we have our April membership meeting. That's going to be at Rogers Hall in Lowell. It's going to start at 3 p.m. and run till about 5 p.m. And our presenter is going to be Nathaniel Hurst. He serves as the Northside Lines Terminal Train Dispatcher for Keolis, the company that operates commuter rail in Boston. He's going to show some photos and give some recollections of his time dispatching commuter trains on the former Boston and Maine Railroad. Then on Sunday, April 23rd, starting at 10 a.m. and running to 3 p.m., is the Hooksett, New Hampshire Lions Club Model Railroad train show, which is located at Collie Middle School in Hooksett, New Hampshire. That's going to be a great show. It always is. We're going to have tables there. We'll have merchandise, books, clothing, DVDs, some model trains for sale, so be sure to stop in at the Hooksett train show if you get the chance. And then in May, we have our membership meeting in Plymouth, New Hampshire at the old Plymouth Senior Center, downtown Plymouth, located right next to the railroad tracks, and that's actually the old Boston and Main station there in Plymouth. It's going to start at 1 o'clock p.m. on Saturday, May 6th, and our presenter is going to be Bruce Davison, who we've actually had on this podcast as a guest, and he's going to talk about his time working for the Wolfboro Railroad Central Division, operating freight on the state-owned line between Concord and Lincoln, New Hampshire, from 1976 to early 1977. And without further ado, we'll continue right into today's episode. On this episode of High Green, we're joined by Bill Dean. Bill has been a lifelong rail fan in both the modeling and historical aspects. A retired member of the MIT chemical engineering faculty, Bill has been a member of the Friends of Bedford Depot Park organization since its its inception in 1995 and has served as an officer since 2011. Most recently, he authored the book Minuteman Railroad, Boston and Maine's Lexington Branch, an extensive documentation of this fascinating Boston and Maine branch. Bill, welcome to High Green. Thank you. So, Bill, uh, I'll start from the beginning here. How did your interest in the Lexington branch start off? Well, I moved to Bedford and uh, me and my wife in 1976. And uh, it was right at the end of the Lexington branch's uh, active time. Um, of just a few months later, um, passenger service ended in January 77, very suddenly in the end of a snowstorm. And uh, so actually I never got to uh, ride on it or actually know the branch firsthand while it was still alive. But being a rail fan, I was intrigued by the, uh, what, uh, learning about what must have been there. The tracks are abandoned tracks in the Bedford yard were still in place for uh, several years, uh, you know, after the, uh, the abandonment. And so um, once I had some uh, time as I was nearing retirement, I had an opportunity to uh, dig into the history a bit myself and uh, discovered uh, some surprising things. What were some of the surprises you discovered? Well, I, uh, quite a few, actually. I knew the outlines of uh, what had happened from uh, John Warden's uh, small book that uh, 
had had come out a number of years ago uh, called Arlington's Little Local uh, Railroad. But um, among the things that I had no idea about were um, what I think of as the Lexington branches uh, immediate prehistory, which is that uh, it became uh, feasible because of a uh, very unlikely industry, namely the export of uh, natural ice from ponds in West Cambridge, Fresh Pond and Spy Pond, to, um, to tropical ports, actually to places as far away as uh, Calcutta. The natural ice industry was, uh, uh, was booming in the 1830s and 1840s, and um, the, um, it was outstripping the ability of uh, horse-drawn uh, wagons on uh, muddy roads to get the ice from those ponds four miles to the deep water docks at, uh, at Charlestown. And um, that whole, the history of that whole industry was a surprise to me. I had no idea it existed. And uh, it was that need for transportation from um, what is now West Cambridge to, to Charlestown that uh, caused the Charlestown Branch Railroad to uh, be extended from Charlestown out to the Fresh Pond area. And that in turn, um, by covering the first four miles made it feasible for the um, citizens of um, present day Arlington and, and, and Lexington to finance their own rear or the additional uh, seven miles to Lexington. Yeah, so I've always found the ice industry pretty fascinating myself. Um, as a former resident of East Arlington, I lived there for uh, multiple years, a few years back, and I found out about the ice history on Spy Pond and it's a really interesting little tidbit of history that's kind of, in a lot of ways, seems to be kind of lost in more recent times. Um, not too much evidence today of any sort of ice facility at the pond, but always, always neat to know um, to know that it was a large part of the economy back in those days. So that that sounds like a fascinating uh, part of the railroad as well. Yeah, I mean the other. Um... Another industry I've been completely unaware of with a little bit more of a tangential connection to the Lexington branch was the, the extensive uh, brick industry in, um, in West Cambridge, what's now called West Cambridge. The nomenclature is very confusing, of course, because as I think you know, the um, uh, town of West Cambridge was renamed itself Arlington <laughs> in 1867. And so the uh, the old West Cambridge is really you know Arlington, but uh, the present day West Cambridge is the part of Cambridge you know west of, um, well, kind of in the Alewife, uh, you know, uh, Brick Parkway, uh, you know, area. Um, so anyway, the, 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 there's that issue with the nomenclature. But for you know for thousands of times driving to work, I drove down Alewife Brook, you know, Parkway through an area that. Uh, I learned uh, was once uh, covered with clay pits and brick manufacturing uh, plants. And you would never know it today, although there is actually still one existing uh, flooded clay pit uh, off of uh, Ringe Avenue. That's a remnant of that industry. But uh, that and one, uh, one house formerly occupied by a, uh, a brickyard supervisor, all that remained of that uh, industry. Actually, it's funny, Bill. I know exactly where that pond is you're talking about. Uh, for many years, I walked to Elwife to get the red line into work every day. I walked uh, by the pond or drove by it. So I never I never knew that was a remnant of the clay in the brick industry, though. So that's uh, that's fascinating to find out as well. Yes, I mean, where the, um, the Ringe Towers are, the public housing along uh, Ringe Avenue, uh, those that land there was all uh, clay pits and uh, brickworks. And the brick industry lasted much longer than the ice industry. The ice industry had was on the decline by the 1880s and was um, on a sort of an export scale was pretty much gone by 1900. But the brick industry hung on until um, in the form of New England Brick Company until a, a little after World War II. Yeah, and it seems like uh, for the Lexington branch, they also, it also seems like uh, farm products, uh, some lumber. It seemed to have a 
few different types of industries along the length of the line between uh, West Cambridge out to Bedford. It seemed to serve a decent diversity of uh, businesses over the years. Yeah, well, the uh, yeah talking about the freight traffic, uh, which of course is always less important than the passenger traffic, but um, the loads were mostly inbound, as you say, lumber uh, to um, uh, lumber and agricultural uh, supplies, uh, feed and grain. Um, each of the towns had a uh, uh, and coal. I should say each of the towns had a, had a, had a coal and grain dealer, usually that uh, uh, sold lumber uh, as well. And so a lot of the uh, freight traffic was inbound to um, small firms, uh, uh, you know, like that. Um, there was a time when um, when Arlington uh, was actually known throughout the East Coast for its uh, produce. Uh, Arlington was a was a, uh, a pioneer in uh, uh, market gardening and the use of greenhouses to extend the growing season. And once it's uh, at one time, its produce was known all up and down the East Coast, probably shipped in fresh pond ice. <laughs> Wow, that, that's fascinating too. And that's actually a fact about Arlington I did not know. That's uh, really interesting about the greenhouse use and interesting little fact there. One um, industry, when I was uh, looking through your book uh, the other day, Bill, Brigham's Ice Cream, which obviously any most kids growing up in New England, probably up until the 1990s would know very well. Uh, it was great to see that they were also a rail customer back in the day. Yeah, I think they regularly got uh, uh, cars of um, uh, milk and uh, probably, I think probably cars of uh, uh, liquid sugar. Yeah, and I think prior to being Brigham's, I believe it was known as uh, Buttrick's Dairy or something along That's those right. lines. That's right. Yeah, when I, when I lived in Arlington, the old... Um, I'm not sure if the complex is still there, but um, it was the final days of the Brigham's restaurant at that original complex of theirs off of Mill Street was still, it was open, I think for a few months after I moved to Arlington, then unfortunately it shut down. Then the final shop up in Arlington Heights also closed around then as well. So that was a, that was kind of a sad uh, farewell to a industry I knew very well from my childhood, but uh, interesting to hear its ties with the uh, Lexington branch, of course. Um, I want to I want to circle back to a point you made a few minutes ago, Bill, about the Lexington branch. So it, it always had some level of freight, as we've discussed, but definitely passenger trains seem to be a little more of the lines uh, bread and butter. Uh, what can you what can you sort of uh, elaborate on about that? Well, it, as I said, it had uh, it was made feasible by the ice industry, and it uh, hauled some ice of its own in its early uh, years from the fresh pond uh, uh, ice houses. But uh, even uh, even then, and even when it still had some uh, brick traffic of its own, uh, it was really all about getting people to and from Boston. It was uh, it was conceived as a local project by. Uh, West Cambridge today is Arlington and Lexington uh, citizens and financed uh, by them. And uh, it was their way of trying to keep up with the, uh, the times and uh, uh, you know, uh, have uh, as strong of economic and cultural contact with Boston as they, uh, as they could back in the 1840s when they uh, financed and, uh, and built it. And then as, uh, as time went by, uh, of course, the, the, the original company, the Lexington West Cambridge, uh, struggled. Uh, it was undercapitalized. Um, it, uh, it had issues in its relationship with the Fitchburg Railroad, whose uh, tracks it relied on to uh, get people to and from Boston. And um, was, uh, you know, failing by uh the end of the Civil War and nearly bankrupt in the late uh, 1860s. Um, but when it was purchased by the, uh, the Boston and Lowell, uh, there kind of then began a golden age for the, for the branch. The Boston and Lowell expanded it to beyond Lexington to um, 
to Bedford and Concord, um, increased the service, uh, you know, year by year to um, the point that by the late 1880s, when the Boston Maine took over, there were uh, uh, not just uh, the, the original three round trips to Boston, but uh, uh, dozens actually. Uh, and the service uh, peaked in 1900 with, um, this is hard to believe for anyone who's, who knew the branch in his later years, there were 60 scheduled steam trains on the Lexington branch operating as far as Arlington in 1900. That's, that's 29 round trip passenger trains, a round trip local freight, plus an unknown number of, uh, of extras. But that's uh, 60 trains in a 15 hour day works out to be one train every 20 minutes. Wow. So that's, uh, I mean, that's basically in many cases, that's rapid transit frequency right there. I mean, even, even today, I think the MBTA orange line runs like every 14 minutes during rush hour currently. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, right. wow. That, yeah. When it's running. Yeah. <laughs> because um, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, Bill, but I believe the Lexington branch was always single track, correct? No, it wasn't actually. It was, um, it was at one time a really uh, high capacity railroad. If you were to turn uh, you know time machine back and visit in 1900, you'd have a hard time distinguishing it from a BNM mainline. It was double tracked from um, from Somerville Junction out to Lexington in uh, 1886, and the double track remained until 1927. Actually, so there was a 40 year period when it was it had double track uh, much of that time. Um, uh, it also had automatic block signals, and uh, it was distinguished by I think the only BNM branch to have its own interlocking tower uh, in uh, in North Cambridge, which is where the uh, Central Mass tracks join the uh, Lexington uh, branch. And uh, in that little stretch from North Cambridge to Somerville Junction, there were something like eighty trains per day. So that's one every fifteen minutes. Wow. That's crazy to think that today that's a, it's a very popular bike path, but it's amazing to think that today there's no trains at all. It's just, yeah, a, yeah. just a bike path and it's pretty, uh, pretty fascinating stuff as, as a former Davis square resident itself. I, I always had trouble believing like massive freight trains, bud cars, all that stuff passed right through the center of Davis square, not too, too long ago. So it's uh, amazing how things change over time. So um, moving moving on to you know towards the World War II, then the post-war era, po the post-war era in particular really seemed to be kind of a turning point for the branch as far as um, freight definitely seemed to start declining, as well as uh, passenger runs also seemed to start declining. I guess there was competition for the automobile as well as nearby MTA services. Yeah, I would I'd actually go back earlier. Uh, to identify a turning point. I think the turning point was um, when passenger service began to decline was actually right around uh, 1900. 1900 was the peak. Um, 1900 also happens to be the year that the parallel Lexington and Boston Street Railway opened that uh, was within Oh, about half a mile of the Lexington branch over its entire length. And uh, it pretty within a couple of years, it pretty much wiped out all the local traffic on the Lexington branch. And uh, by 1915 uh, or so, just before World War War One, the number of passenger trains was down to about one third of what it had been in 1900. After that, the decline was slow. Uh, up to 1915, uh, motor vehicles were not really a factor, but uh, in the 1920s, uh, they became an you know, important competitor for not just the Lexington branch, but also the trolleys. In fact, the trolleys were eliminated by the, by the mid 20s. And, uh, and then there was just a, a you know, long, slow decline in, uh, in, in traffic on, of course, all the Boston area commuter lines. Uh, through the uh, through the 20s and into the into the 30s, a brief recovery during World War II, when 
when gas is rationed and uh, and new cars are unavailable, but then a uh, you know a, a decline again uh, after that. Uh, what was um, of course most ruinous for the BNM was they had not just uh, declining uh, passenger revenues, and uh, it's it's kind of questionable whether they had any profits actually generated from passenger traffic from. Uh, you could say even from World War One on, it may have been, it's hard to tell from the records, but it may have been a money losing proposition even back then. But um, uh, uh, you know, back closer to the World War One area or pre-World War One area, they could compensate for the passenger losses by their uh, profits in freight traffic. If the freight traffic started to decline, uh, after World War II, so that was the big, you know, the big difference, and no, it could no longer support the passenger uh, losses. So you had passenger traffic going down during the 20s and 30s, freight traffic holding up pretty well, and then uh, and then the freight traffic starting to collapse in the 50s, and uh, uh, so the uh, the Lexington branch, of course, was not immune to what was happening on the B&M system as a whole, and uh, it was. Uh, it was hurting increasingly going into the into the fifties. Definitely, and I think um, I believe it was nineteen fifty eight when B and M pretty much shuttered most of their sort of internal stations that also had uh, nearby MTA or uh, more localized transit services. If I'm correct, yeah. In, in May of fifty eight, uh, there was a uh, kind of a cataclysmic. cataclysmic Date. I think it was May nineteenth or May eighteenth, eighteen fifty or nineteen fifty eight, when the uh, the B and M system wide eliminated. Uh, I think it was in the hundreds of trains actually, and uh, dozens of uh, places lost all passenger service. The Lexington branch was cut from um, uh, down to just a single uh, round trip, but the Lexington branch, of course, was just a tiny part of the part of the system that the the cutbacks were uh, were system wide within the Boston commuter area, as you said. The um, uh, stops uh, uh, were eliminated. Many stops were eliminated. In fact, all the Arlington stops were uh, were eliminated because Arlington was a town served by the um, the MTA, uh, you know, buses and trolleys, and so it was thought at the time that um, that was redundant and that the the uh, you know, commuter rail should not be competing with the, uh, you know, with the, with the mass transit. Um, whether that did any good for the system as a whole or for the, uh, it's kind of questionable. The Lexington branch had half of its passengers rode from Arlington. And uh, a few years later, the Arlington stops uh, uh, at uh, Arlington Center and uh, uh, and actually, Lake Street were reinstated. So, so I think it was decided that that wasn't maybe the cutbacks were not all such a, a great idea to begin with. Yeah, I think I think that's true, especially uh, to your point about the cutbacks not being a great idea. I mean, the MTA services would take you to Harvard Square, whereas you know the train would take you right to North Station. So for those those folks who are used to getting that one seat ride right to downtown, even if it was only one train a day, they knew they could get on that bud car or that, uh, you know, coach and be in town in a X amount of time. Whereas if you're riding a, a bus or a streetcar into Harvard station and riding downtown, that just adds more variables to the daily commute. So I'm sure the train always had some pretty dedicated, uh, commuters. Well, they, they, by that time, um, and certainly going, you know, later going into the 70s and near the end, the uh, train was also a social experience that uh, a number of people appreciated. There's some nice, you know, stories about, um, uh, you know, people making, you know, friends with the other regular commuters and, uh, uh, you know, celebrating uh, uh, birthdays, uh, meeting for lunch, you know, once a month, just because they had shared the uh, uh, you know the you know the train day in and day out back in the in the time when there was just a single uh, you know round trip and the service itself was not exceptional. The trains are running slower than they were in the 1870s by the 1970s, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, with just a single uh, round trip, but uh, nonetheless, uh, some people uh, 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 enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, uh, just as a, as a way to you know, wind down at the end of the day or to uh, uh, talk to people who had become friends, uh, something that you don't see too much of on, on buses or on the, on the subway. <laughs> Yeah, definitely not. Um, especially, Bill, there was one specific story in your book that I really enjoyed. It was um, the woman named Mary who lived near the Brattle stop in Arlington, who was always running for the train every single day. And it turns out she waited to not just get ready, but to actually get out of bed. She waited until she would hear the train in Lexington. And that just astonished me, number one, that she could actually hear the train that far down the line, and also that she was able to then get herself together and get to that train in probably maybe only a 10 or 12 minute window, I'd imagine. Yeah, no, she was, uh, she was amazing. And of course, um, getting back to the social aspect of the, uh, of the commuting, um, um, she got to the point where uh, the other passengers, uh, she would, she would be racing down the street, uh, hailing the train and uh, the other passengers would be uh, yelling, wait for Mary, wait for Mary. And uh, the uh, she had to run under the uh, the Brattle Street overpass and then up the stairs. And those those stairs are still there. They now reach the Minuteman Bikeway, and I I think of them as Mary's stairs. Uh, maybe maybe someday we can have a plaque placed there and uh yeah, an acknowledgement of her uh, her endeavors every single day. But that, I really thought that was a that was a fascinating story. Um, so, t- so getting more into like the later and the final years of the passenger trains on the branch, did anything significant change with the service between the you know, the B&M to sort of MBTA, like jurisdiction change? I think that was in like 64 when the MBTA uh, came to be. And then like, was any anything, any changes in service at that point? Or was it basically just kind of running on fumes? Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to uh, to put it. I think the uh, uh, the MBTA was formed in '64 and began, I think, actually providing subsidies in '65, if I remember correctly. Um, the uh, course, the BNM was still operating the trains on contra- uh, contract and did so until um, actually December of uh, uh, of '76 when. The MBTA bought the rest of the uh, B&M's commuter trackage and, uh, and equipment. I described that whole process as just one of gradual deterioration, uh, increases in running time, um, more and more uh, slow orders as uh, as the trackage got uh, worse and worse. Um, there's a, you know one of the stories that recorded is of a uh, of uh, somebody working on. Tom Thompson actually working in the uh, for a summer job as a track laborer washing an RDC in West Cambridge past uh, a section of track they're working on and describing it as looking like a carnival ride as, as the car walked back and forth and wondering if it was going to end up on its side. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of a uh, period of gradual uh, deterioration. The uh, the MBT, I'm sure, was doing its best with the limited funds it had, but it was spending most of its money on trackage near North Station. And uh, the Lexington branch, uh, in terms of the patronage, was you know a low priority, and so it was not uh, it was not getting much in the way of, uh, uh, of of track repair, you know, funding, and that was causing the rides to increase almost year to year. On uh, that note, Bill, were there any notable derailments or accidents that you remember from the later years? Or uh, Not from the later years, and actually not that many from earlier years. There were some amazing accidents in the, in the early years, going back through the, uh, over the 1880s to the 1920s, when the trains were running at the traditional 45 mile per hour uh, speed limit. Uh, near the end, it was more like 10 miles per hour. Um, but one uh, uh, one nice thing about the Lexington branch is there was there was never a fatality in 135 years, uh, at least not that I could discover any. Uh, 
uh, any word of. Um, one actor that comes to mind in the, um, it would have been, uh, I have to look it up actually, but in the 1940s, I think, that a, um, there was a washout just south of Arlington Center that caused uh, a train, an inbound train, uh, pulled by an Atlantic to um, uh, hit a soft fill and, uh, and derail and uh, it was just a two car train. And the engine ended up at a, and the car is at sort of a 45 degree angle on this uh, 10 or 15 foot embankment. And um, the, uh, there were only three passengers. It was, it was the last uh, inbound of the, of the day. So fortunately there were only three people. And they, um, they didn't even bother giving their names to the, to the train crew. They just, they just got up, left the car and walked up to Mass Ave to continue their trip into Boston. <laughs> Imagine that, you know, happening, uh, you know, today. Sound like uh, sound like hardy New Englanders to me. Yeah, hard, hardy <laughs> New Englanders, and uh, you know, just another another day going into Boston. I mean, I, I guess it's in some ways similar to sometimes riding the MBTA these days. So yeah, more and more like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so back back to sort of the final years of the Bud Car Service Bill. Um, so it seems like the service ended extremely abruptly in that. They left for Boston one day, a winter day, January 10th, 1977. And, you know, there was snow in the forecast. Um, it ended up being a fairly large storm, but it never seemed to occur to them early on that that was going to be the last day of passenger service, did it? No, there was no uh, planning that I could uncover any evidence of, uh, certainly no public announcement. Um, Chris, what's happened is the uh, the, you know, the nor'easter came in. There was snow. Uh, there was some uh, some warming, and then and then uh, a, a deep freeze. And so, with just the one train per day to Boston, and nothing else on the track in between morning and evening, uh, the uh, the track iced over so extensively that it made it really difficult to get out to Bedford. Uh, addition to the to the snow and by the time they uh, they got there with the uh, one RDC with the help of a uh, of a switch engine um, they were stuck they couldn't move in either direction uh, actually and uh, the crew uh, the crew went home they were told uh, not to report the next day uh, nothing, no announcement was made for the passengers many of them showed up at their um, either at Bedford or Lexington, thinking they could ride the train in the next day, but there was no service. They took buses instead. And then uh, it wasn't until actually March uh, when the MBTA actually announced officially that the service would not be, uh, would not be uh, you know, resumed. So the Lexington branch uh, began and ended with ice. That's a great way to put it. Uh, being a resident of Bedford at that time, Bill, in that sort of interim period between January and March, were you were you at all surprised when finally in March the MBTA said that's it, or was there hope that the train could come back? Yeah, well, the, the whole discontinuance happened so quietly, uh, and and um, the train was was not a convenient way for me to get to work uh, in Cambridge. And so actually I never rode the train in during the four months when I would have had a chance to do so uh, before it was discontinued. So it, it um, I think by that point it had very little impact on uh, on people in Bedford or uh, uh, or in Lexington. And, and unlike the service cutbacks that had occurred in the 1920s that created an enormous public protest. The, um, you know, the, the, the branches sort of died with barely a whimper. Yeah, it's amazing how sometimes that happens. I was actually, that was, you sort of uh, got to one of my next questions, whether there was any sort of push or opposition for the service to be restored whatsoever. But it sounds like in this case, most people just realized that it had kind of run its course and that was it. 
Well, even I think as early as uh, 1965, the uh, uh, the MBT uh, announced that um, service on the um, on the Lexington branch would be discontinued uh, on one. Uh, I think early in January, and by the end of January, when the new schedules came out, they reversed their decision. So the Lexington branch was on, uh, can I say, thin ice? <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, let's let's, for let's stick with the for the actual uh, yeah, end of service. I may have the the year wrong when the uh, they first made that announcement; it would be discontinued. But it was uh, it was clearly not one of the more robust. Uh, you know, MBTA sponsored, uh, you know, services. And, uh, and later on, uh, when studies were made about um, doing things like extending the, uh, uh, the red line uh, out as far as uh, Lexington, the, um, uh, the expenditure that would have been required to do that was viewed as, uh, you know, much less desirable than uh, other corridors that had more ridership. Yeah, so uh, two two points. Number one, let's definitely stick with the ice theme. I'm I'm liking it, especially as someone who's a who's a pretty big Boston Bruins fan. You know, it's a it's a good good theme to stick with for tonight. Um, one thing I have wondered about the abandonment bill. So the Central Mass and the Lexington branch, I always kind of feel like they get lumped together often. That they sort of served a more lightly populated demographic compared to, like, say, the Fitchburg or the Boston Albany mainline. But the Central Mass was abandoned in 71, and the Lexington branch hung on until 77. Any any ideas you might have why the Lexington was able to outlast the Central Mass, or was it just kind of coincidental? Oh, I think, I think the exact years when they, um, well, the fact that one lasted a few years longer than the other is, was sort of, you know, coincidental. We had very different histories, of course. The Central Mass had uh, much larger ambitions uh, when it opened in the 1880s and, and did make it all the way out to the Connecticut River, uh, Northampton. Um, it had it never had uh, traffic as heavy as the Lexington branch, uh, although it did have a couple periods of heavy, uh, heavy freight traffic. So they're pretty, two pretty different uh, animals, actually. Uh, of course, the Central Mass was much much longer in its uh, maturity than was the, the the Lexington branch. One thing they did have in common is that they were both uh, 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 overseen by the Boston and Lowell and were part of the Boston and Lowell's invasion of the Fitchburg Railroad's uh, territory north and west of uh, Boston. And I think the Boston and Lowell was sorry it ever got involved with the Central Mass because it was not a I don't. I think it, if it had any profitable times, they were relatively brief. Whereas the Lexington branch, uh, I think, was a, 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 a very nice profit center for the Boston Lowell during its uh, kind of its golden years in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s before the trolleys arrived. Interesting. Yeah, it's always. Um, I've always found both of those branches very. Very fascinating, I guess, because they were lasted into the MBTA era, but they didn't last very long. But so the interesting, the other interesting thing I found about the Lexington branch is even after they got the RDC out of the snow, brought it back to Boston, closed the book on passenger service, freight did continue for a few more years. Uh, what what was that like in its uh, final years? Well, there was very little. Um, let's see, you go back a few years. Um, Starting in the 1960s, uh, the freight traffic, uh, even by then, was heavily concentrated in Arlington and Arlington Heights. Uh, there was only, um, course the track after 1962, the track the track beyond Bedford had been abandoned. Uh, there were just a couple of customers in. Um, uh, in Lexington and, and Bedford by that point. Uh, Griffith Ladder in Bedford was one of the last customers to have its own uh, uh, you know, siding. Uh, the building is still there, by the way, opposite the Bedford Depot next to the, uh, mm. next to the uh, uh, Bedford Depot Park, um, occupied by a different, uh, different company. But 
most of the traffic was into was into Arlington. Um, the the um, and it consisted um, actually the biggest single customer on the branch then was an outfit called New England Farms, which um, brought um, things like onions and potatoes and other produce in from the West Coast in refrigerator cars and repackage it for local sale. They were um, they were by far the bigger. They were in Arlington Center. Um, uh, and uh, we're the biggest customer by some distance. The second biggest customer, I believe, then was actually the Bethlehem Steel had a distribution center in West Cambridge. Uh, and then beyond that, there was a uh, Larson's uh, wholesale uh, lumber supply uh, in Arlington Heights uh, was another significant customer. But there was not a in the, in the in, by the early 70s, there was not a whole lot else. And by the mid-70s, uh, New England Farms, Bethlehem Steel uh, were closing down. And um, the last customer actually was, was uh, Larson Lumber. And I, think, I believe the last, the last car coming off the Lexington branch in 81 was probably an empty boxcar that had delivered lumber to Larson's in Arlington Heights. Wow, and that was uh, that was officially the end of uh, rail service. But it's interesting though. The 1980s seems like, even though the rails were quiet, the bikeway hadn't gotten built yet. It seemed like the 80s were an interesting time for the corridor, and the fact there was speculation that perhaps the red line could be extended to Arlington, Lexington, or to Route 128. I know as you turn into Elwife on the red line, they even built that station for a potential future expansion on into. Arlington. I always found that pretty fascinating. But in the 80s, what was what was sort of the the temperature about, you know, subway service, rapid transit service being used on the corridor versus it sounds like uh, bike and bike groups were starting to show interest in the corridor as well. So it seems like there was a lot of different uh, groups trying to vie for the corridor during that time. Well, so in um, in eighty one, um, the uh, when the the last freight service occurred, the embargo uh, beyond Ringe Avenue in um, in the uh, uh, in West Cambridge uh, occurred to um, because some of the track had to be torn up for construction of the Alewife uh, T station, and uh, the um, at that point, the, the railroad was not uh, uh, announced to be uh, facing abandonment. It was supposed to be a temporary removal of that, of that track, which the MBTA was legally obligated to uh, restore when, they were, when the construction was finished. The, um, so the, uh, as you say, the plans went on. There was, there was uh, um, leading up to that, there was, uh, discussion, as you say, of, of a red line extension, not just to Arlington, but all the way to Lexington. The, um, uh, the temperature did get pretty hot, especially in Arlington. There was tremendous opposition to having uh, a red line terminus in, um, uh, in Arlington Heights, which is where it was planned. And uh, eventually uh, uh, the strong community opposition caused the uh, you know, the red line to stop at, uh, uh, you know, at, at, at Alewife. And then, as I, as I mentioned before, there were, there were studies for years about possibly extending uh, the, the red line or uh, some other form of uh, maybe, you know, bus service or something else uh, out farther, even as far as Route 128. But that, uh, as time went on, that became less and less, uh, you know, desirable. I think, uh, Many people in um, actually Lexington, uh, when when there was talk of the red line extension there, Lexington was actually on board with it uh, for a certain period, and it was it was really the opposition in Arlington that uh, I think uh, killed uh, killed the project. And who knows if it had gotten as far as Lexington, if uh, it might not have been extended a little bit farther out to uh, to just beyond. Uh, Route 128 to the Hanscom uh, field area, which would have been a, a natural uh, 
area for a you know commuter uh, uh, people to park their cars and and you know ride into Boston. But we won't ever know. Yeah, because I guess at the end of the day, it sounds like uh, the bike, uh, the Minuteman Bikeway, was deemed the most uh, viable use of the property, and uh, that conversion was done around. Sounds like ninety one, ninety two. Uh, what was uh, what was that like during the conversion phase? Any sort of interesting discoveries found as the rail trail was being built, or any any interesting things to note from uh, that era? There wasn't really much left to, to uh, you know just discover. I think. Um, I mean, I like to tell people the Lexington branch, uh, you know, never had any. Uh, tall bridges, it never had any tunnels, it never had any other spectacular, uh, you know, artifacts. It just, you know, wound its way through <laughs> through Arlington, Lexington, and Bedford, and then to, you know, Concord and, uh, and, and Bill Ricca. And uh, uh, so there, there was, as the, as the bike path was being constructed, of course, the rails were being removed, uh, but there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot to, uh, you know, discover. I think at that uh, at, at that point, the um, the of course the bikeway interests uh, began organizing in the uh, uh, in the in the 80s and uh, you know gaining you know support for the for the project and that became a uh, uh, the, uh, the you know the final the complete opening was in 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 93 and I think the uh, uh, most people in the towns would probably say that they're glad that the, you know, the bikeway was, was built. Now the railroad still is not officially abandoned. The, uh, the preservation of the right of way um, was, uh, was done under a, uh, uh, a federal regulation uh, uh, referred to as rail banking. And so the, the right of way is still owned by the MBTA. Technically it could be converted back to rail or some other uh, mass transfer transit use in, in the future uh, although that seems you know quite unlikely that that would ever happen but uh, it's not really abandoned wow that, that and that's one of those things you know you're riding your bike down there and you think about that it's it's slightly reassuring for uh for the rail community just to, just to know that potential be it slight is still out there one quick thing I did want to note, Bill, I'm sure you're aware of this as well, but when you're talking about uh, infrastructure along the branch in Arlington, walking down Mill Street, I believe, I do I do love that stone arch uh, culvert that you can sort of see down in the ravine. I believe it's, uh, I think it's the Mill Brook that passes under the railroad there, but it's kind of a, kind of like a hidden little stone arch that you'd never know was there when you're walking on the trail above it, but something I always really enjoyed seeing when I was in the area. Yeah, I think that 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 uh, culvert may go back to the uh, to the eighteen forties construction. I'm not sure, but I know I know what you're referring to. Uh, of course, there's that. There are the um, there are the um, uh, the uh, the uh, over the underpasses that were created in Arlington that are still, um, the, the bridges over the roads are still being used by the, the bikeway. So those are, those steel girder uh, bridges are still uh, probably the largest artifacts. There are uh, abutments um, uh, at the location of where Pierce's bridge was in, uh, in, in Lexington. The original granite abutments are still there. They were built to last forever. The uh, uh, we talked about Mary's stairs, the, the granite abutments in the in the vicinity of the old Brattle Street station uh, are, are, are still there. So there's it hasn't it hasn't vanished without a trace, uh, but um, uh, and the parts of it that's still there will probably be there for a long time because they're they're uh, awfully tough, and uh, <laughs> um, but the. Preservation of uh, some of the depots was a kind of a different thing entirely, and that there, there are, uh, uh, as, as you know, the uh, the Lexington Depot, the Bedford Depot, the Bedford Freight House, and we could even throw in the North Bill Ricca Depot as uh, mm. 
uh, 19th century, you know, wood frame buildings uh, whose uh, survival to 2023 is kind of a miracle. Uh, they, they each managed to avoid fire and demolition until a time when they, such buildings could be, uh, you know, could be appreciated. Absolutely. And uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Lexington Depot, that's one of the few actual depots with a train shed that still stands to the best of my knowledge, at least maybe on the B&M system. Yeah. Yeah. It may be the only one um, uh, that still stands. The, uh, the train shed, uh, of course, the bikeway runs through the train shed uh, now, and the, the the depot. Its overall appearance is very similar to when, uh, even uh, back in the nineteen fifties, when there's still steam passenger trains. Uh, the train shed uh, was, I think, the reason the, the parts of the depot go back to eighteen forty six when the railroad opened, and the uh, the train shed part seems to have been added on and in 1873. So that's a certainly a venerable part of, uh, you know, of Lexington. Interesting. And unfortunately, I don't think there's much evidence left of it, but Lexington, I believe there was a turntable, there were yard tracks. I think uh, mostly it's probably where those parking lots are now, but Lexington seemed like it had a decent size uh, rail facility back in the height of uh, the height of the line. Yeah, Lexington off and on was a was an engine terminal, uh, and uh, it had uh, two different turntables at different times. There was one um, uh, more or less opposite the uh, uh, the depot next to Merriam Street, uh, and then um, it was replaced by one that was a little bit further uh, further south, uh, uh, more or less opposite where some of the, the first block of stores uh, is along Mass Ave. Yeah, and of course, as we know, this sort of segues into the next topic I was hoping to hit on. Um, 1995, the inception of uh, Friends of Bedford Depot Park. As we know, Bedford is really fantastic little piece of Boston Maine history that's uh, readily available to see. So uh what can you what can you tell us about the beginnings of that uh, organization, Bill? Well, the Bedford Depot Park and the Friends of Bedford Depot Park are uh, more than anyone else were the uh, brainchild of my uh, late colleague Jim Shea, who suddenly passed away uh, last fall. And uh, Jim was a lifetime Bedford resident, and uh, the way he told it to me is. Uh, uh, one day he was heading into work. Uh, I think it was in, uh, uh, I think April, 1994. And uh, uh, some of the Bedford yard tracks were still in place, but there was some heavy equipment tearing up rails. Uh, and this was in preparation for, uh, uh, no, uh, I, I must have the, the year off a little bit. I think it must've been 90, 92 because it was the year before the, the bikeway was finished. Anyway, the rails were being pulled up one spring day. Uh, Jim noticed it, went home, got his camera and uh, took some uh, photos, one of which is in my book of the, the demolition going on and started thinking about uh, what a shame it was uh, that the uh, railroad might vanish without a trace. And uh, got to talking to a few like-minded people in Bedford and uh, uh, hashed the idea of, um, uh, of having a commemorative sign next to the bikeway. And uh, he said uh, the original objective was to have a sign and a shrub. And uh, it went from that to um, acquiring a rail car for display in Bedford. This is now in 94. Uh, Jim contacted the MBTA. Was, uh, the MBTA still had on its property in the woods in North Billerica three RDCs, uh, all in uh, pretty derelict uh, condition. They offered Bedford their choice of the three for $1. Uh, Jim asked around, uh, was put in contact with Dan O'Brien, who was the, uh, the uh, 
uh, head of uh, passenger car uh, you know, maintenance had been responsible for RDC maintenance. And there's nothing about RDCs that Dan O'Brien does not know. And Jim was able to elicit Dan's uh, cooperation. And uh, they went up to North Berwicka together and picked out the one that had the best exterior <laughs> and that was the most uh, restorable. And it uh, turned out to be the 6211, which uh, we learned, uh, or they learned later, had been operating regularly on the Lexington branch. So um, that, was, uh, that was Bedford's car and uh, uh, for $1, but then many tens of thousands of dollars later, <laughs> it took to transport it without a real connection to Bedford. And uh, it was 11 year restoration project to, uh, to get the inside and outside looking uh, you know, much like it did when it left the uh, factory. So the rail car was the second part of that. And then uh, as um, the, the project gained momentum and uh, 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 grant applications became uh, successful for the uh, 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 from, uh, federal uh, transportation uh, preservation money uh, and some state money, uh, the, uh, the town got on board then uh, in uh, reacquiring the two surviving railroad buildings from Bedford had been in private hands since 19, uh, uh, well, one had been actually sold by the railroad, the freight house in the 1940s and the uh, depot had been sold, I think in 1950, uh, probably 58. And uh, one had been occupied, the depot had been occupied by some uh, 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 contractors, electrical, plumbing, and so forth, and they modified the uh, added a second floor inside and modified the windows and doors and used it as storage and office space. The uh, the, uh, the the freight house had been uh, had had gone uh, been sold to a local uh, 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 feed and grain dealer. It went from that to uh, being the uh, home of the uh, local VFW. Uh, became a, uh, a, a little uh, bakery at one point. So it, it underwent a whole bunch of changes over the years, but the buildings are still there. Um, the depot goes back to, it was built in 1873. Uh, the freight house is actually uh, the one remnant of the Bill Rick and Bedford uh, narrow gauge. It was the Bill Rick and Bedford engine house for the, or the two foot gauge that uh, uh, came, uh, connected those towns in 1877. So anyway, the town got, um, uh, was able to support the project and reacquired the buildings. And then over uh, a, uh, almost a 20 year period, uh, restored them, provided landscaping and uh, you know, other amenities and created uh, uh, Bedford Depot Park. Uh, during that time, the Friends of De Bedford Depot Park went from a, a group of uh, just sort of advoc advocating the creation of the project to, uh, you know, supporting it uh, through uh, uh, making the facilities available to, you know, uh, to visitors and uh, and uh, providing uh, information on the uh, on, on the history to visitors and, uh, and uh, in, in improving the interpretation along the, that part of the bikeway. Yeah, and I got to say, as far as sort of you know, living pieces of the Boston, Maine that you can still really experience. I mean, Bedford Depot Park is just right up there as far as uh, excellent places you can really go and experience the history of the B&M. I mean, I've, my mother actually lives in Bedford. So, I mean, I drive by that location very frequently. And, you know, even, even now, like my uh, young son asked to stop and see the bud car the other day when we were driving by, and, <laughs> you know, it's uh it's it just like really you're, you're raising him properly. I I am. Yep, we got a got a little 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 rail fan, especially a little B and M rail fan. So it's and it's just you know I've, I've biked it, I've run on it, I've walked, I've snowshoed in the winter. I mean that trail, you know, if it if it can't be a railroad, I've always sort of thought you know some of these rail trails are pretty good options in that they really preserve these corridors that may not necessarily have been preserved if there wasn't the group there to take that initiative. And Bedford Depot Park really seems to be trying to preserve that 
history of the B&M while at the same time preserving the corridor as well, which is especially uh, nice. Yeah, I think it's 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 been a, a really a great resource for uh, for Arlington, Lexington, and Bedford to have that uh, that bikeway leading uh, from Bedford down to uh, you know to the Alewife uh, T stop. Yeah, yeah. So that um, that kind of concludes the uh, you know my questions and talking points, Bill. I mean, this was a uh, this was really fantastic to get to sit down with you. Um, like I said, your book, I have a copy of that other book, the Arlington's Little Railroad book. And, you know, over the years, I always thought it would be great just to have something with more photographs, especially pictures from the later years of service. And, you know, the the book that you've written really encapsulates um, all aspects of this fascinating little branch really well. So, you know, it's well, well appreciated within the B&M community and within the rail fan community, I think. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, I encourage anyone listening to, that it makes will make an excellent stocking stuffer for all, all family members and, uh, and, and, and friends. Uh, in fact, don't even uh, wait till Christmas necessarily. Well, again, Bill, I really want to th- uh, thank you for uh, joining us tonight. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, talking to you and getting the full story of uh, this fascinating little branch line on the BNM that really has a very big and very interesting story. Uh, you know, thank you again for your time. Well, thank you for your interest. That wraps up this week's episode of High Green. If you'd like to be on the show, or if you know anybody that has stories or memories of the Boston and Maine Railroad, you can reach out to us. Please send us an email at bmrrhs at gmail.com or you can send us a message right on Facebook. Hope you enjoyed tonight's episode, and we're looking forward to having you back for next time.